0: Welcome to the weekly segment of ESG Now. I'm your host, Mike DiSabato, and this week I'm joined by Olga Emilianova, Megan Eastman, and Matt Muscardi to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. Coming up, an Oregon aluminum extrusion facility pays $46 million to NASA, the U.S. Department of Defense, and others for a fraud scheme including falsifying thousands of aluminum certifications. Some of the aluminum mess up the launch of Taurus XL, a rocket that was supposed to deliver satellites studying the Earth's climate. Then we discuss hotel giant Marriott International trying to get into the home sharing game. Thanks as always for joining us, and let's get to it. So for our first story, we're talking about aluminum extrusion. And for all those that do not know what that is, it's like when when you were young and you took Play-Doh and you pushed it through a mold. Except in this case, it's aluminum and it's molded into different shapes and it uses tons of hydraulic power and temperatures up to 900 degrees. And one such facility, Hydro Extrusion Portland, formerly known as Sapa Profiles, has agreed to pay $46 million to NASA, the Department of Defense, and others to resolve criminal charges and civil claims relating to a 19-year fraud scheme that included falsifying thousands of certifications for aluminum extrusion some of which messed up a NASA rocket launch. While we do not cover Hydro Extrusion, we do cover its parent company, Norsk Hydro. Megan, how does this mess up the parent company?
1: If you're, if you're looking at Norsk Hydro's long-term resilience and what it's going to do for investors, this incident probably isn't that big a deal. It's a small subsidiary. The settlement is really kind of pocket change. That's like a drop in the bucket to the parent company. So there's an ethical problem at the subsidiary. There's an oversight problem. But is it really going to make a difference to Norsk Hydro and Norsk Hydro's investors? Probably not really.
0: Perhaps not. But I think the larger question around this is the sort of pressure Norsk was under and whether going forward companies that are under such pressure to meet necessary regulations to address climate change or to deal with resource depletion, uh, what they're going to do, like Dieselgate involving Volkswagen. They did it both to court investors and because they wanted to be able to pass European regulation that they were having trouble getting to while keeping their profits where they are. But I guess my question is what sort of environment was around this Norsk subsidiary that
2: created the variables for fraud? fourth quarter 2018 norsk hydro their results were down aluminum is basically flatlining um writ large um I, I was reading reports about smelters going offline for all sorts of issues largely esg issues like labor strikes or um uh all sorts of community issues uh the tailings mines uh are problems there's all sorts of issues in the industry across the industry and volume is basically down um so and actually ironically Norse Hydro is delaying their earning their their um first quarter earnings this year because they got hit by a cyber attack and locked out of their systems they're delaying the earnings by 5 weeks. So maybe you start to see the probability that a company might falsify I'm not saying would but might maybe there are patterns like you could go historically and say What percentage of these companies that kind of are involved in some of this outright fraud in some way it's because they're under pressures that they can't manage they haven't adapted to
0: yeah and when now that it happened we have to assess when we can trust the company again after norsk hydro settled the case a spokesperson came out and said norsk has invested significant time and resources to completely overhaul their internal quality and compliance uh internal organizations i guess But how can I trust a company whose subsidiary literally just committed fraud?
3: Exactly. And that's, I think, the problem because um, we, as well as probably investors, as regulators, as North Hydro itself, uh, all of us, and uh, including some of the reporting requirements, we all very heavily rely on certification and some kind of form of external assurance. And I think that this particular case is extremely interesting in the context of all the other fraudulent activities whether it's emission manipulation or maybe some of the product quality that in the end still leads to the product recalls, Um, some of the dam inspections that um, may be overlooked by companies. And that opens the question, are the metrics that we're using to ensure our assessment, to ensure that the company meets certain criteria are trustworthy?
0: But this was a subsidiary. Does that change how we look at the fraud and how we look at Norsk itself?
3: In general, when uh, we do evaluate the companies, we look into their um, vendor relations. They will look into their supply chain structure, um, some of the policies and practices to ensure the compliance, whether it's uh, integrity of the materials or some of the operational integrity or uh, efficiency of the operation sourcing. Um, So that might indicate that there is some potential gap in Norsk oversight of its vendor and subsidiary relations. Um, But this is something interesting to investigate to what extent we can hold the parent company responsible for misconduct of some of the subsidiaries, especially some smaller-scale subsidiaries.
0: Yeah, good point. And Megan, I know you work a lot on identifying uh, the most appropriate ESG risk factors for us to use to assess these situations with. Are, Are there any specific things that you would look at when analyzing this uh, Norsk case?
1: We talk about corporate governance a lot, and we talked about Volkswagen earlier. And long before the Dieselgate scandal broke, we had been flagging governance problems at the company. And this doesn't really hold up with Norsk Hydro because we were saying, actually, their parent company, corporate governance, is quite good but we can identify weak spots or weak companies where we know that it's not good. And therefore they're more vulnerable. So that's not a panacea, but it does help move in the right direction.
2: It, it gives, I, I feel like, um, like I have a gut reaction. That's like a self-critical one that says, okay, what could we have gotten to know about something like this? Like there's these patterns of behavior. What, what's the extent to what you can know and could we have seen this coming? I don't want to say we got it wrong, But I'm kind of curious, like, what does it mean for what you can get right?
0: Okay, the Wall Street Journal reported that Marriott International is starting a new home rental business aiming to take on Airbnb and other home-sharing companies in one of the lodging industry's hottest segments, that is home-sharing. There are some key differences I should note before we get get started between a massive hotel organization and an organization that is massive on its own right, but Airbnb doesn't have the same safety and regulatory oversight since it structures itself as a community-sharing tool rather than a property-owning juggernaut. But Airbnb is huge. It has five million rooms available versus only 1.3 million rooms by Marriott, which is such a stark difference. Um, But Olga, you picked this story. I assume you've used Airbnb before, right?
3: Um, I think both times I was using Airbnb, it just felt like a hotel. It was clean, sparkly clean. There was no little things lying around it was unoccupied residents. And I think that's the concern that Merritt um, is gonna start facing, very similar to what Airbnb is facing, is um, fueling the problem of uh, unaffordable housing where real estate being purchased not for the um, residency, not for the primary resident, but for the rental purposes, and thus limiting um, accessible and affordable real estate to um, to us, to you.
2: Yeah. <laughs> a- add on to this, too, that um, their, their Marriott workers uh, had a strike at the end of last yeah. year. It was right. the largest a hotel strike one. in U.S. history. Yeah, because... Like the workers aren't getting paid. There's clearly a business angle to stepping into this market for Marriott because they solve two problems at once, right? But they're also stepping into a gig economy that's under pressure, um, where there's this broad move into the gig economy, and uh, the the effects on employment are 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 still to be written. I, I mean, if you made me pick. You know, is this a good idea or a bad idea? I know from a short term business model standpoint, it's it 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 will likely accrue to Marriott's benefit, but I think there are inherent risks here that haven't necessarily manifested yet or are unknowns, which makes me feel like I would be tepid. I wouldn't it's not the kind of thing that I jump right into it. Well, before the call, Megan was asking whether or not this was Innovative by Marriott. Do you think so? I mean, innovative. It seems like everybody everybody in the universe is kind of stepping into... the. It's like buying innovation, right? Like It's not like Marriott's innovating. I feel like they're buying into a non-regulated zone.
0: It's like buying away from regulation.
1: But that's not likely to last over the longer term. Regulations take a while to catch up, but they usually do eventually. In some form or another. I asked the question because I was thinking about ESG and long-term resilience and the need for adaptability and innovation capacity. And I think your point, Matt, about buying innovation is an interesting one because it's some of the research that I've read suggesting that organic innovation is more effective over the long term than purchased innovation because it actually is more embedded in the company's culture and its DNA.
0: You mean having an
2: internal development of a product is better than acquiring a company? I think you mean like disrupting – if you're a company that disrupts, it's more ingrained in the DNA of the company to innovate than if you're a company that acquires, even if you're acquiring a disruptor or a disruptive business model.
1: I think that's kind Um, of it, the idea that that just – buying it and then integrating that into a larger existing culture is quite different than having a larger existing culture that is by its nature innovative.
0: Yeah, true. I always look to Marriott for my innovation. That's it for the week. Thank you so much to Olga, Megan, and Matt for joining me thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please don't hesitate to subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please also rate and review us. We try to respond to all the comments, even if we don't get to yours, and we always enjoy getting feedback. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and have a great rest of the week.